Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can come here as the gathered body of Christ and we can remember and celebrate what the Lord has done. And what the Lord has done is good. Lord, we just want to thank you for the fact that we are in your redemption story and that we can speak the name of Jesus and that it has power over our lives and it has power to affect the lives of the people around us. Lord, we just thank you that we can gather together and sing these truths as your children, as your body in this world. Amen, amen, amen. Please take a seat, take a seat. Uh, hello, hello, everyone. My name is Kyle. I work here. I, uh, I tell jokes and I reach things in high places, so that's, that's my job here. Um, also, it's my son's seventh birthday today. He is not in here, but happy birthday, Walt. You have done well. I know, um, I know there's been a lot of talking uh, in this service today, but don't worry, I'm now preaching, and you're thinking, good, it's going to be a short one. No. Um, but you're also thinking, don't worry, it's probably going to be a good one. Also, probably not. But anyway, we're here, and I'll be able to see if you leave. So that's all good. Um, I do want to welcome all of you. Uh, I think it's been a fantastic service so far, and I'm just excited that we get to, yeah, really dig into what's ahead. Uh, we're coming into our Love Loud season now, and we wanted to take a walk through a, a book of the Bible that reminded us and encouraged us about what we are as a church. And, and Pastor Paul has really alluded to a lot of that already, which is great. Um, the end of the year Love Loud initiatives that were spoken about are an opportunity for our church to get into our surrounding community and show love with no strings attached. It's the perfect chance to, to bless some people and bring some goodness into their lives. And uh, considering all this and thinking about this, we wanted to spend a bit of time thinking about what we are called to be as a church. Um, what are we called to be as a church in our community as well? Uh, and we will have action days and opportunities to actually do the work of bringing goodness. But we wanted to make sure that we weren't just doing things without forgetting, I guess, why we do what we do. Like, what is, what is a church meant to be for the community that it inhabits? Uh, and so we're going to be going through uh, parts of 1 John. And 1 John provides... Uh, a great, uh, is, 1 John is a great space to read and get a good understanding of what our role is as a church. It's a letter written to a church undergoing some challenges and some wrestles and some issues, but overall it's this really encouraging letter in the Bible. Um, and so here's a, a bit of background context for uh, the book of 1 John or 1 John. Uh, 1 John doesn't actually have a, an official author per se, uh, but 2 John and 3 John do have a pen name of someone who refers to themselves as the Elder, which is cool. Um, all, all these three uh, letters are sort of identical in style and verbiage, so we sort of just agreed that they all belong to the same penman, the same author. Uh, and then also these three letters are all similar in style and, and verbiage to the Gospel of John. And so there uh, is just a general agreement that the Apostle John has written the Gospel of John and also these three letters. And so to avoid confusion, there is the Gospel of John near the start of the New Testament. And then right near the very end, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those are, there's four Johns, but they're all by the same John. Uh, so just so you know what's going on. But yes. Um, 
So that's, that's what's going on. And we're looking at First John, which is near the back. And so at the time of writing, John, the penman, he would have been very old. Uh, he was one of the only original disciples to have actually lived into an old age and die a natural death. So how's that for the prosperity gospel? Um, in these messages... He is writing to a group of churches that he helped oversee in some capacity. He sort of like uh, was a bit of a caretaker for a lot of different churches. And these churches are dealing with very normal things that churches would have to deal with, especially in the time when they existed with very limited access to uh, any type of scripture, any type of holy scripture. So they're dealing with questions about whether uh, Jesus is God. Uh, you know, they're dealing with questions about whether certain teachings are true, what type of beliefs that they should welcome, what type of beliefs and leaders that they should reject. Um, and so if you read some of the, the commentaries around First John, there was an issue called Gnosticism, um, which is this philosophical belief uh, in the most basic terms that the tangible body, the body that you can sort of, you sort of touch, uh, don't touch my body, but the body that you can touch is, is evil, but there is a good spirit trapped within. So there's like this evil vessel, um, and then there's this good spirit trapped within the body. And that salvation, uh, when you are saved, it's more of like this intellectual, philosophical thing that happens with no real effect on, on the tangible world. It's sort of all, all head stuff, but not real like, you know, body stuff. Uh, and so for these people, it meant that Jesus wasn't really here in an earthly body because a divine, perfect being wouldn't sort of inhabit an evil, fallen body. So that's sort of this idea of Gnosticism. Uh, and so it, they thought, you know, like, oh, that means our, our bodies are evil, and so what happens with our bodies is sort of not quite relevant to what happens, you know, with our salvation and in our brains. And so it sort of leads to potentially one extreme where there's this incredibly, like, abusive treatment of their own body to try and sort of rein in the evil parts of it, or the other extreme where anything goes because whatever you do to your body doesn't really matter because your body is a different thing to you, you know? So you can do whatever you want, you can go and do naughty stuff, I guess. Um, and so that's sort of this idea of, of Gnosticism there. And so John is writing this letter to this church that is still sort of solidifying their theology and still trying to figure out, like, their place in the world. They're still trying to figure out, like, how they test and approve new teachers, um, still figuring out, like, what they believe. But mostly, John is writing to a church that is passionate about wanting to believe the right thing. They want the truth, which is a great place to start. And so 1 John is sort of written as a bit of a reassurance uh, that God is with them, uh, that holding tightly to the truth is good for you, and to remind them about some of the truths that he's already told them. So you can sort of almost look at 1 John as a bit of a mini-sermon from the actual Gospel of John. Um, and so John, he's a, he's a great writer. He likes to keep things quite simple, like he does lots of contrasts. It's, there, there's light and there's dark. There's good and there's evil. There's life and there's death. He, he does lots of that type of stuff to make it really simple. So he's a great writer. And now here we are, you know, nearly 2,000 years later, after this message had been written, and we ask, what does it hold for us? What do we get from this message and I believe a whole lot of good direction, good encouragement, and just a teaspoon of conviction. Um, so we're going to dig into this passage, and we're going to see where it leads. So we're reading from 1 John, 
chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. This is what it says. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen or what we have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may share in our joy. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So if we are lying, if we say that we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness, we are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for yeah, your word. We thank you for the Holy Bible and that it is relevant today as it was the day that it was written And that there is always something in there for us to sanctify us, to encourage us, to direct us. And Lord, as we read through parts of 1 John today and over the next few weeks, Lord, I pray that you would be encouraging us, sanctifying us, and directing us. Uh, Lord, we are asking for your words to be spoken and for our hearts to be ready to be changed. Amen. Amen. So uh, one really good thing about the author, John, is that he gets straight to the point with a lot of these things, which is fantastic. And so in verse 2, he says this, the one who is life was revealed to us. So uh, Jesus was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim that he is the one who is eternal life. So we saw Jesus. Uh, Jesus was revealed to us that he is life. And because of these things that have happened, we now proclaim to other people what we know. It's as simple as that. So we saw Jesus, he was revealed to his truth, he gave us life, and now we reveal to other people what we know. And it's this really simple statement, but it's actually this ocean-deep theology here. This is one of those times when you think you're stepping into a puddle, and then your foot goes down a couple meters, and you end up, you know, messing your jeans. This is like something that looks very basic and easy on the surface, and then it swallows you whole. So Jesus came to the disciples and showed them the truth of who he was. The truth of Jesus is revealed by Jesus. The truth is revealed by the origin and creator of truth. But this truth doesn't just stay with Jesus. This, this truth then transforms the disciples themselves into recipients and vessels of this truth. And in receiving the truth, The disciples themselves are now transformed into people who have the truth within them. The truth of Jesus, which resided in Jesus, now resides within the disciples. And the disciples are now proclaiming this truth to the church. And when the church receives this truth from the disciples, it is the same truth of Jesus that is now living in the church. And when the church receives the truth, 
the church is also brought into the same fellowship of God that the disciples had. So I know this might sound like a bit of word salad, but follow me. Once you have the truth of Jesus in your life, you are in fellowship with God in the same way that Jesus on earth was in fellowship with God, in the same depth and quality as the disciples who followed Jesus had with God, you become a bearer of truth. You have the ability to possess and pass on the truth that Jesus passed on. You are a bearer of this truth. You have the ability to bring people into the same relationship, the same community of God that Jesus brought people into, that the disciples brought people into, that the first church brought people into. We are not getting lesser and lesser and lesser versions of the relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So to, to emphasize this a bit further, Charles Spurgeon, uh, back in 1861, he preached from this very same verse. And some of the language here is a bit old school language. Um, it was a little bit before I was born because I'm only 24. Um, so just you know, Google it if you don't understand it. But I'll try and explain it along the way. It's a bit of a long reading, but I want you to hear how Charles Spurgeon understands what fellowship with God looks like. Fellowship with God was one of the richest privileges of unfallen man, so pre-sin. The Lord God walked in the garden and talked with Adam and Eve as man talketh with his friend. So long as he was willing and obedient, Adam ate the fat of the land, and among the rich dainties and with wines of lees well refined, of which his soul was a partaker, so of all the things that Adam was allowed to enjoy in this perfect world, we must number, first and foremost, unbroken communion with God, his father, and his friend. So the greatest thing that Adam and Eve had was an unbroken fellowship with God. As sin, as it banished man from the Garden of Eden, banished man also from God. And from that time on, our face has been turned from the Most High. His face has been turned from us. We have hated God, and God was very angry with us. Christ came into the world to restore our lost heritage. It was the great object of his wondrous sacrifice to put us in a position which should be equal and even superior to that which we occupied in Adam before the fall as he has already restored us to the so many things that we have lost. They who have by his grace believed, have received the precious blood and been washed, have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and they are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints of the household of God. And now listen to this section. John, he's talking about the Apostle John, was among the number of those who enjoyed this privilege with Christ in his flesh. He had been Christ's chosen companion, elect out of the elect to a choice and peculiar privilege. During the incarnation, he was one of the favored three who enjoyed the closest intimacy with the Redeemer. He had seen Christ in his transfiguration. He had witnessed the raising of the dead maid, had been with the Lord in the garden. He had lingered with him even when the thrust was given after the death and the blood and water flowed from his side. John had the nearest, the dearest, the closest fellowship and relationship with Christ in his flesh. As he laid his head upon Christ's bosom, so had he laid all his thoughts and all the emotions of his mind upon the heart's love and divine affection of the Lord and Master. But Christ was gone. So this is when Christ died. But Christ was gone. It was no more possible to hear his voice, to see him with eyes, or to handle him with hands. Yet John had not lost his fellowship. Though he knew him no more in the flesh, 
yet he knew him after a nobler sort. Nor was his fellowship any less real, any less close, any less sweet, any less divine than it had been when he walked and talked with him and had been privileged to eat and drink with him in the last sacred feast. John says, truly our fellowship is, not was, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship today is no lesser than it was for the disciples when Christ was there in person 2,000 years ago. And not only do we enjoy this fellowship, which is no less real, no less meaningful, no less divine than the disciples had with Jesus, we pass this fellowship on to anyone through the invitation when we speak Jesus. We proclaim Jesus so that you may have the same fellowship with God of creation, the God of heaven, the God of earth, the God of purpose, the God of identity, the God of meaning, the God of true love, the God of wisdom, the God of peace, the God of relationship and community with God as close and as relevant as it has ever been. And then it says in verses 5 and 7, it says, and this is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So if So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in light, as God is light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So God is light. Uh, John is doing his wonderful job here, giving us contrasts. Uh, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And in verse 6, it would also have us connect this idea of light is also connected to truth. Uh, John contrasts spiritual darkness and also practicing truth. So light is both God himself, light is truth, light is spiritual life, light is fellowship with each other. In my Bible commentary, it tells me that light in this passage refers to what is true, what is good, and what is holy. And those who walk in the light, uh, their life is characterized by truth and holiness, holiness and a willingness to be open to God and his revelation, resulting in fellowship with God and one another. And so I want to spend a little bit of time here and and bring some different mentions of of light to sort of broaden and deepen our understanding. Um, So earlier this week on Thursday, I spoke at the Thursday monthly chapel service, which is the last one for this year. However, if you are interested in coming next year, it is on the first Thursday of every month at 1.30 in this building, Anyone can come along. It's a great place. And I already spoke, so you're probably not going to hear from me again, so you're safe. Um, But I spoke on Thursday, and I spoke from Revelation chapter 2. And I'm not going to be reading all of Revelation chapter 2, but I want to take you guys on a little bit of a journey here. So in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1, it says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among seven gold lampstands. So I've learned from my mistake on Thursday. My question is, keep your hands down if you want to learn a little bit more about lampstands. Perfect. Unanimous. I went the other way on Thursday, and it wasn't as encouraging, but I can see that you're all very excited to learn about lampstands. You've kept your hands down. Good. This is how we're going to do it from now on. Keep your hands down if you're volunteering for Kids Church. Good. All right. Good. Perfect. All right. So... All all I need you guys to know for this sort of journey that we're going through now is to note that the writer, John, once again, same John, mentions that there are seven gold lampstands. And in this space, in this letter, in Revelation, 
Those seven gold lampstands are symbolic of seven churches that are receiving the letters in Revelation. So, get it? Seven gold lampstands in Revelation are written to seven churches. That's what they are. Lampstands, churches. The book of Revelation is this letter written into those churches, and that's all you need to know. So hold that thought in your head. Now, we move on to Exodus 25 in the Old Testament. And in this chapter, if you've ever read it, it reads just like an Ikea how-to-do list. Like it's a little construction thing. I'm pretty sure when Exodus 25 was first written, it came with little Allen keys as well. And there's extra little wooden doggle things. So that's what happens. In Exodus 25, it is just instructions on how to build the tabernacle. It is like, you know, there's instructions on the tabernacle size and space and positioning. And inside it, there's talks about like how to build the Ark of the Covenant, how to build the table, how to build a lampstand. And so that's all very ha- all happening in Exodus 25. And it's all very specific and very detailed. The Ark of the Covenant was to be placed in the Holy of Holies. Um, that thing where there's like light emanating, That's the Ark of the Covenant, so that's a place in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle. And then there is a lampstand and a table that you'll see, which is called the Holy... It's in a place called the Holy Place. And you're probably thinking, okay, so what? Cool. Well, the Holy Place, uh, where the table and the lampstand are located, is in this enclosed place. There is no windows... No, like, you know, sun, sunlight, no, like, little LED switches to light the place up. It is in total darkness. It is enclosed, and all light is kept out. No natural light. And then in verse 37 of Exodus 25, it says, Set the lampstand up. The words are, set the lampstand up so that it shines light on what is in front of it. And now, if you look at how the holy place is set up, there is the lampstand, and in front of the lampstand is a table. This table has a couple names, but the main name of this table is called the showbread table. You might have figured out why it's called the showbread table. It is called the showbread table because it shows bread that is placed on the table. There are very tricky writers back in the Old Testament. uh, Testament. So there is bread sitting on that table, and that bread is called the bread of presence, and it was to symbolize the presence of God. So there is a table with bread And that bread symbolizes the presence of God. And there is a lampstand there. And the sole purpose of that lampstand, if you read in Exodus 25, is to shine light on what is in front of it. And what is in front of it is a table that holds the very presence of God. A light shining on the presence of God for the people that are allowed in this room. And then in the New Testament, God comes along in the form of a person named Jesus. And he refers to himself as the bread of life. He refers to himself as God with us. God present, his presence with his people. And then we move into Revelation. And now God refers to the seven churches as the lampstands. And historically, what was the job of the gold lampstand? To shine light on the bread, which is no less than the very presence of God. The church, shining light on the bread. Us, the church, shining light onto the bread of life. The church, shining light onto Jesus. Our church's vision is aligned to the Great Commission given to all believers at the end of Matthew, to build, uh, to build disciples who represent Jesus to everyone, everywhere, with everything. Representing Jesus, illuminating Jesus, Shining light 
on Jesus. One of the things that we spoke about when we were discussing... Oh, it's not that funny. Uh, One of the things that we spoke about when we were discussing this sermon series was this idea of, I wonder what it would look like for people to say, how good is it to live near a church? Like, I wonder what it would look like for people to actually love living near a church. You know, when you walk past the real estate signs and at the bottom it says all the things that it's within walking distance, you know, walking distance within public transport, walking distance between shopping centers, schools, all those types of things. Like, imagine at the bottom of a real estate sign, it said walking distance within the church. Imagine if the homes in all the blocks surrounding our church felt like it was beneficial for them to live near our church. That their lives are better because they happen to have the luck of sharing the same postcode with Clayton Church of Christ. Imagine if the people living around our church lived in the light of the presence of God Not because God inhabits a building or a piece of bread, but because God is present in his people and his people are gathering here. Surely there is something special to be found about living in close proximity to the gathered body of believers. Uh, Don't judge me. Um, No, do judge me. I've got good taste. I remember being at a Justin Timberlake concert quite a few years ago. It was great. It was a really good concert. That guy can dance and sing. Um, and there was a lady next to me. Uh, she was, uh, had her phone out and she was taking photos through the whole concert. And she had her flash on for the whole time, every time she took a photo. And like, I, it, it was, it was a, a phone camera taking a flash in what is now Marvel Stadium. So one phone sort of flashing, trying to light up Marvel Stadium. And we didn't have great seats. <laughs> Um, So we weren't like right up close. So you think of this one camera like flashing, trying to like, you know, somehow illuminate Marvel Stadium so that she could get a good shot of JT. But then at one point during the concert, JT does what every good person does, and he got everyone to get their phones out and to turn their lights on, and the stadium lit up. It was the united presence of lights all gathered together. And I know that's a bit of a sappy example, but man... Like you, you yourself, you in yourself have the presence of God in you. And this message that we just heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So you have the presence of this God in you. You are equipped with the presence of God. God who provides hope for people who don't, who don't understand why they are alive and don't know if they even want to be. Uh, The God who provides peace for people who have lost jobs, lost family, lost faith in people around them. The God who speaks truth into people's identities and sexualities and addictions. The God who can do more than just change circumstances, but change hearts and minds. The God who provides purpose and meaning and reason You are equipped with the presence of this God. And not just like not just you, but like all of you are equipped with the presence of this God. All these people with the God that is light in them. And like imagine what that can be for our community. How wonderful would it be if people were excited to move into the neighborhood because they knew that they would be moving closer to the church. 
Your family from overseas comes to visit and you're showing them the sights of Clayton, you know, the great places to eat, the local basketball court. Uh, and in the same breath, you also mention Clayton Church of Christ. Come and check out this place, the reason why you love to live in the area. And it's not actually that crazy to think that because it can happen. Um, Michael Carl was writing about the church attendance and the online versus the in-person dynamic. And in this quote, he mentions like the online and in-person dynamic. Ignore that bit. I want you to focus on how he describes what a Christian is. So listen to this quote and focus on how Michael describes what a Christian is. As church attendance numbers fade across the nation and online services become convenient, it is important to remember why church attendance for you and your family matters so much. You can't serve from your sofa. You can't have a community of faith on your sofa. You can't experience the power of a room full of believers worshipping together on your sofa. Christians are not consumers. We are contributors. We don't watch. We engage. We give. We sacrifice. We encourage. We pray by laying hands on the hurting. We do life together. The church needs you and you need the church. Christians have a positive impact on the community that they are planted in. And I think that if we, as a church, are called to proclaim the truth of God as it speaks in the first few verses, then we need to be fully convinced and assured of what it is that we are proclaiming. We need to be convinced and convicted that we have a deep and true relationship with God, a relationship that is as real with God as the disciples had with Jesus when he was here in the flesh, the relationship with God that is just as real as the first church had, that every believer through history has had. The fellowship that we aren't, uh, the fellowship that we are invited to, isn't like a, a photocopied version of someone else's that gets worse with every sort of you know iteration of it. It doesn't lose its quality or luster. It is the same fellowship that John, who laid his head on Christ's chest, had. We are brought into that divine and true fellowship, and we can invite others into that too. We need to be convinced and convicted that. Our God is a life-changing God, a God of hope, a God of truth, a God of freedom from shame and despair, a God of transformation, a God of identity, a God of alignment. We need to be convinced that God doesn't just have the answers, but God himself is the answer. We need to be convinced and convicted that we as Christians have a large part to play in illuminating Jesus in our community. That the way that we live, the words and the deeds that come from us have the power to illuminate Jesus in a world that does not know him. Our lifestyle and our intentionality in relationships need to be constantly reassessed to make sure that the lampstand hasn't moved and that we are no longer not shining light on Jesus, but we are in the space where we need to be so that we shine the light on the presence of God. How good is it that we get the opportunity to step out into our community? How good is it that this church has built up the goodwill among the city that we are welcomed in to speaking into things and to stepping into things? This Love Loud season is a simple but powerful way for us once, to, once again to shine the light out so that people can see Jesus. I cannot imagine how many people in the neighborhood around the church will be able to joyfully say what it says in verse 7 in years to come. When the people of our community say, 
we are living in the light as God is in the light. Then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. So if you are wanting to have prayer for any reason, whether it be praising God for some great things that are happening, or whether it is something that you want to pray for that is going on in your life or something that has happened in this message or throughout the service, during this uh, next set of worship, there'll be the prayer team coming forward to the front that you can come and pray for. But you're always welcome to come for prayer after the service. But I just want to maybe close now in prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have asked us to be to partner with you in this. And that it is not just something that we have to do of our own strength, but we are recipients of your light. We are recipients of your truth. And that this fellowship that we have with you isn't lessened as it is passed on from one person to the next. But it is the same deep fellowship and relationship that the disciples themselves experienced with you. And we get that. We have that invitation. Lord, I pray that we would take our role seriously as as a gold lampstand that shines light on the presence of God. Uh, Yeah, Lord, may we not forget what we are called to as a church. Amen.